Hello and welcome to another episode of That Blind Lads podcast and a brand new episode of Journeys. Today, my special guest is Hannah Vogel. Hannah, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you going? I'm very good, thank you. And, uh, thank you for coming on on a podcast with, uh, I think we've it with, obviously with you being in Australia, as people, I assume, can tell with such a big time difference. Yeah, all good. Thank you very much for having me and thank you for the invite. So with all my guests, I kind of like to give them the reins of what they talk about, really. Um, and like let you choose where the beginning is, whether that be this time last week or, you know, the minute you was born, um, wherever you feel is necessary that gives myself and the listeners the best kind of image of you and and stuff like that so you know stage is uh stage is yours sure um i mean i can uh say my name is hannah hello lovely to meet you all um i am based as you said in australia um the thing that i suppose i'm going to talk about today is is i guess my research so i'm a um historian uh archaeologist uh, particularly ancient world um, so my special area of, of interest um, is in terms of research, uh, disability in the ancient world, in particular in ancient Egypt, and uh, my research focus particularly on ableism and Egyptology. So I'm a, a very passionate advocate um, for accessibility to humanities in general, but of, of course my particular area um, in, in ancient world studies, my experience of ancient world studies so far um, is that this discipline can be, um, I mean, it's got many problems, um, but also many amazing things to offer. And one of them is that accessibility is extremely poor um, when it comes to ancient world studies and ancient history, archaeology, um, and that comes from a range of things, uh, a poor understanding by, by academics, um, inherent ableism, um, in academia itself, as well as uh, the kinds of resources are just not, accessibility is not built into our curriculums in many cases for ancient world studies. Um, and I, I reject that idea. I, I think there is no reason for these disciplines, which are, are fascinating, um, to be elitist or to be exclusive or to be ableist. There, there is no reason for that other than people's own own prejudice. Um, and yeah, I, I sort of have my research interest feeding into my own uh, activism and, and advocacy um, in that I'm interested in studying disability in the ancient world because the way scholars in these disciplines approach disability in the past is much like they do in, in the current time or if they're um, from 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th. 20th century, um, they reflect the, the ideals of that time, which um, in many of those contexts has histories and ties with eugenics um, and ableism, racism, colonial ideas and ideals, I should say. Um, so I'm really interested in, in challenging the way we perceive the past because it puts a magnifying glass and a mirror both on the, ourselves today in the way that we see ourselves in the past. 
um, that's a bit of a ramble, but I hope that <laughs> gives it an, an insight in, into. Um, hey, it, yeah. It's it's fascinating because I've listened to a podcast quite a few minutes ago now <clears throat> of um, I believe they were talking about disability in ancient Egypt specifically, or it might be in Greece. I can't remember. It's one of the two. And you think, how do you kind of develop? And obviously, it's just generally fascinating that. In the world that we live in now, you know, it's not 100% accessible, long way from it, although we're improving. Most people would be like, oh, disability back in those times, we're talking hundreds, thousands of years ago, we're just probably right off and go, yeah, this, what's, it, what's even the point? Because if it's not accessible now, it would have been just completely just, you know, not even, didn't even exist back then. So how do you even start getting into that kind of, area yeah yeah and I think um I suppose you're kind of asking two questions I'll start with um the the idea of people's perception of disability in the past um and I mean there's different ways you can approach that question you can say what evidence do we have for disability or what evidence do we have for accessibility um and there is lots but it comes down to I think as well as disability in the past it does depend on your definition of disability but you know that's a can of worms so we'll we'll use the most broadest possible sense um yeah. for, for now the broadest possible sense of disability um in ancient past if there's this common perception that disability didn't exist in the ancient world which is just impossible it's it, like statistically there there is no way the world existed in terms of people existed without disability so if you think, um, I mean, statistically as well, you know, the percentage of the population that has a disability today, think how much that would have been increased in the past, particularly the ancient past. You're looking at pre-modern medicine. You're looking at um, no kind of um, understanding of contagion, of genetics, of, uh, I mean, anything we know today regarding healthcare um, or very little of what we know today about healthcare. So in the ancient world as well, you have an increased number of potential injuries, work injuries, um, physical labor as well. So statistically, there are more disabled people in the past per year than there are today. Um, mm -hmm. You know, old age um, and, you know, osteoarthritis and, and associated conditions that come with age which are disabling um so you know depending on whether you recall old age a disability is a another can of worms um you know that statistically there just has to be so many people in the ancient world who are disabled or have a disability um and so this idea that people with disability or, or disabled people from like now on i'm probably going to go with disabled people depending on your preference um but um you know, identity first or people first. I'll just say disabled people for now um, with no intention of offending anyone. Um, but, you know, disability in the past not existing is such an ableist idea. And that's what I'm talking about of, of bringing research into disability in the past really puts a mirror on the scholars of the ancient world in that the public believes that disability didn't exist. The disability community thinks that they didn't exist in the ancient past, that's so wrong. You know, you if 
if you have a particular medical condition, you shouldn't have to look across all of history for someone who might have experienced the world like you at a different time in a medical pathology book. You should be able to, to see, hear, find a story. Um, and, you know, archaeology in particular and history is a reconstruction of the past. We are using extremely fragmentary evidence to make interpretations. Um, I, I, I teach um, at, here at, at a university in Australia and um, one of the things that we tell our first year archaeology students is there's no truth in the past. Um, there's no fact. There, well, there's some facts, but, you know, there's no truth. There's no inherent, you know, story that that is the absolute one and only story of the past. Everything is an interpretation. We're looking yeah. through fragmentary sources. And even if you're using literature, it's someone's perspective. There is so much bias um, in the ancient sources and, and world itself that we're just adding more and more layers of our own biases into what we study in the past. So um, in a really roundabout way of, of answering this question, you know, of course there's people with disability or disabled people in the past, of course. It's the questions we choose to ask and the stories we choose to tell, which influence it. Yeah, no, I didn't, didn't think of it that way, because the lack of medical help back in those days just made that the disability even more broader that you know a small infection that we now just shrug off and take antibiotics for that would be seen as you know whether they get there they're going to amputate you know, or even die from it that purely just seen a disability whereas now that's just that's just a, an irritation to us kind of thing mm, yeah 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 for sure and um, I suppose that's kind of like where the the two go go hand in hand in that I'm incredibly interested in accessibility and um, disability advocacy in the the tertiary space um, museums as well. You know, being historian archaeologist that you know extends into to tertiary is our university, so our, our academic spaces, our teaching spaces, um, and then our museums, our heritage. Um, you mm. know. Tell, telling disability in the ancient world, you have an absolute obligation to also make sure that you are engaging with the disability community today. And also that the terminology used, for example, is, is considerate. Um, that, that's a huge thing, particularly in Egyptology. Um, you know, when you're working with hieroglyphs, for example, the translation of those texts are based on grammars. Um, and, and dictionaries, which, you know, many are written in the 20th, later 20th century. Um, and the translation contains highly offensive languages in, in highly offensive terminology and language um, today, yet it's still continuously translated as the same way. Um, so, you know, I'll say a person with a lower limb impairment is an equal translation as, um, and, and please excuse this offensive terminology, cripple. And that is constantly the translation of, of a particular text. Um, and, and then I don't see a, a need to not update these dictionaries, but um, you know, terminology is a huge thing in, in ancient world studies. 
that definitely needs an update. And if I, um, you don't mind me name dropping, um, Alexandra Morris, Alexandra F. Morris, um, who is a disabled uh, researcher based in the UK, who um, is researching disability in the ancient world as well. Um, Alexandra and Dr. Debbie Sneed, another researcher on disability in ancient Greece and infanticide in ancient Greece, who has a wonderful article about accessibility ramps in ancient Greek temples um, that is open access. They both have uh, a terminology guideline for disability language in ancient world studies um, that's available freely online if anyone wants to use that. Highly recognized. I recognize both of their names. I've had, I think I've actually had Debbie on, I've had her on Twitter for quite a while. And Alexander, I think I saw his name along with yours. When I... Alex Alexandra, yeah. Alexandra, yeah, sorry. Um, but, but when I bumped into both of you, it was both of you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I do recognise them. In terms of terminology, is it, was it just lots more terminology? And you kind of think when you do translate some um, documents, I suppose you call them from ancient Egypt or whatever time it is, that these words you just wouldn't even think about. Obviously, we're just being thrown about as if like, like the word disabled is today um some some of them is is ignorance and then some of them um like product of its time in terms of language that would be used in the 20th century to refer to a disabled person or person with disability um and those terms have gone out of are now considered offensive they are like unequivocally like uh, offensive um and the issue that i have is that they're used in in modern literature over and over again so um my my master's uh research uh was entitled ableism in egyptology um and that was a research of scholarly literature i didn't even look at the ancient evidence of disability in the in the past i looked at ableism in the discipline through approaches and and studies and um, works that looked at disability in ancient Egypt, I studied ableism within that literature. Um, right. And the fact that I could do that study alone says says something. Um, and, and yeah, it came to the, the continual uh, use of terms that are inappropriate. The disability community rejects and calls offensive in articles, you know, 2000 and 17 18 you know 2020 like the, there's no there's no need for that it doesn't change the meaning of the ancient text because you're working with the translation anyway so there's no reason not to update the translation uh, and particularly if you're you're you know not just citing these works but directly using them as core pieces of your arguments and i think i think without kind of throwing a blanket over you know not that i know anything when it comes to <laughs> comes to this but without throwing a blanket over those people that uh, i don't know what you want to professors i suppose people who've been doing that kind of stuff for decades kind of they're just a product of their own time when they were brought up and haven't been exposed to maybe social media or exposed to a disabled person to say that's not the word we use anymore this is the word kind of thing would you agree with that yeah, I mean, um, I mean that is that is a potential argument, but I would I would say publication takes an extremely uh, 
an extreme amount of time for the process of publication to publish articles, books. Um, you know, there are there are publishing companies involved, editorial companies. Um, so there, there is no reason that journals um, and their, their broader publishing houses um, for books require accessible language. Like what? Like why? Why not? If you if I have to reference in a certain style with a certain number of spaces between my, you know, like lines, there has to be um, a certain type of referencing, certain type of formatting, certain text font. If I have to do all those things, why not use language that does not offend someone today or um, use language or avoid language that deliberately offends someone today? Um, you know, you can't make everyone happy. Um, that's fine. But, you know, there, there should be guidelines in place. Um, and there's no reason to continue, like, particular terms that are, are incredibly offensive. Um, and that comes across many different uh, isms, you know, sexism, yeah. racism, um, ableism, you know, why not? Why would, not you, would you say that this is kind of going into the terminology conversation more than obviously your agent Egypt disability but we said that in my opinion anyway I feel that disability is behind on when it comes to people using the correct terminology in that racism 99% of us know what we how we describe a person of color you know there's words that just are just flat out not used in any context saying goes for um, you know, uh, gender, same goes with sexuality. And mm. I feel like disability is just a bit behind and that words, like you said earlier on, like crippled um, or, you know, I mean, in this country, I don't know about everyone in Australia, but handicapped, another you know, one that's not yeah. thrown about that much. Although in the States, it seems to be a normal term. Would you agree with that? That it's a bit behind on the others compared to them? Yeah, and I think um, so. The field of disability studies it, itself. Um, I mean, there there are scholars who've who've also sort of um, made that same claim in that the the field of disability studies, uh, which is a an umbrella term for a multidisciplinary field that studies uh, disability in society, largely contemporary society, but that that field is heavily inspired by. Um, gender studies and and uh like uh race studies critical race theory um and things like that and they they themselves would would argue that too um but you know i i still think the although it is behind yes <laughs> to answer the question yes um i think you know the, there's no reason that there, there just isn't a reason that there isn't terminology guidelines within uh, publications regardless yeah, I mean, should, my, they should all opinion. be on the same level kind of thing i suppose yeah i mean you know when it comes to ancient world studies right often professors um say we'll say a broad term professors scholars academics um they um, may perhaps say, you know, I'm researching the ancient world. I'm interested in the ancient world. It's, it's, you know, not relevant for P 
people today and and I just think well then why are you here you know universities at least in Australia are largely public funded a lot of our research is public funded our PhDs our um like our government uh large government grants so the, if you're getting a very large government grant within your university um it's government funded therefore public funded um which is going here <laughs> yeah yeah you, you do have a responsibility for your research to be relevant to people today um and you know there may be little relevance in terms of the direct outcome of your publication or you know whatever um whatever it is but there needs to be some kind of significance some kind of consideration for who is going to read your research or who could who can who can access your research and engage with it um and if you are excluding a statistically large percent of the population, then you're not serving your funding justice. Um, and and that's my opinion. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. How is it that you tackle that? So she said you you teach um, students at university. How is it you tackle when you have a document that has, you know, what we would see as offensive terminology? Would you read that document to them or let them show them that document and then kind of say, this language here isn't what we use in the modern day world this is what we use is that how you do it or is it a different way yeah i mean um it, it depends on on what it is so for example um one of the units i i'm tutoring so i'm not convening the unit so we have someone who does the lectures and i do our tutorials which are our small um smaller group classes um right. and so introduction to archaeology for example um we do some object handling and um you know we talk about themes in in introduction to archaeology so um some of the broad big picture questions i always start with an introduction to who i am and i talk about what i am researching but also what i value and why i'm researching what i'm researching so i give my my spiel um and then i i talk about accessibility as being very important to me so I, I would encourage the unit conveners or our lecturers, which are our academic uh, full-time staff, so our professors, our le senior lecturers, um, associate professors, to have inclusivity statements included on our um, student homepage that the students access the lectures and the reading materials. Um, and I would encourage people to, um, you know, acknowledge that I consider accessibility really important and therefore if there are accessibility requirements um which the university should does and should um cater cater for there there is also additional consideration that i'd like to to make and um when we encounter terms i will often just remove them so in that case that you said of a reading that uses inappropriate language i just won't include it so if we have a, a slide like a PowerPoint slide that's that's um, on the board or a reading that's distributed to students, I would remove the word and then put a bracket uh, of the more appropriate terms. So, you know, if you have a quotation, you've got quote marks, the text, um, and then I would remove the inappropriate word, put in square brackets, the meaning with more appropriate language and then um, end the quote. And then you right. could also put an asterisk and acknowledge say i've changed this word from x to this got you 
Yeah, that makes sense. If I walked into a, a mainstream um, educational setting, whether it's a university or a college, because I'm currently a, a blind college in the UK, so it's kind of doesn't really matter. But if I walked into a university college and I had the teacher or whoever's leading the class say to me, accessibility is important, that would be like a, that'd be a dream. I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> I've hit the jackpot here. So that is, um, that's pretty pretty good that you guys do that and you make a, a thing of those inclusivity statements that's i think that's what a lot more um a lot more educational settings should be doing i think the fact that you guys have obviously like you said earlier it's public funded it's probably i don't know i don't know if it's pushed or it's like better but obviously in the uk um you have to pay for your university time and and what have you so it's probably not as important to them um we, we have to pay as well oh we have to pay for our degrees it's wow. more um more the staff who may get uh, you know salaries but yeah yeah thank you yeah. i'm glad you, um yeah okay fair enough yeah like government grants and all that kind of stuff that's i suppose that, that, that comes into a bit but yeah it's, it's it is kind of crazy how more places don't say that you know accessibility is important especially in in those kind of things where you are going to come across the stuff that you study yourself like those documents that have uh now we would see as offensive terminology and stuff like that is that is yeah. that some is that something you're just trying to just so spread across your area and hope that other people just kind of pick up and run with it as well or yeah for sure i mean um so like as an example um I've run a workshop with some colleagues, um, some, some wonderful colleagues um, who on accessibility in ancient world studies. And we had a panel of disabled scholars as well. So we had two events, a workshop on accessibility, which was basically like a introductory level masterclass, if that's a thing on, on you know, accessible, um, uh, like as simple as adding alt text to, um, you know, uh, accessibility checking a word document to um, uh, all, all sorts of like different uh, media styles we we talked about inclusivity statements and how to write one and where to put it and where to use it um, and why they're important um, and things and so I've, I've run that workshop which was circulated amongst our like our community over here and internationally and then um, also at my own university uh, myself and one of my my other colleagues um, have in fact, our university organized and funded an inclusive teaching event. And that, that wasn't centralized on, on disability inclusion or accessibility. Um, it, was, it was all the, the broadest possible sense of the term inclusion um, and in inclusivity. Um, and that that was just a couple months ago. And, and we, we again presented university-wide and then they, they did workshops. They compiled all the resources and put them on a resource accessible to all of the academic staff um, and teaching staff. So there, there are a lot of resources out there and, and you know, we're pushing, uh, developing them, pushing them um, out and making them accessible to people. Um, it's just, I think people need to care. They need to, they need to actually implement it. And yeah. sometimes the way to make people care is to make it a requirement um, or add it to a policy, you know, things like that, particularly at an institutional uh, level. 
So um, I, I would like to see accessibility statements or inclusivity statements a requirement in my university. Um, and, you know, they, they're currently not. Some people don't even know what they are, but they could. They have, they have the resources to know how to write one, what they are and why they're important. So, yeah. And I think it's also one of those things where I feel like people who, like you said, who know what they are or know, or at least don't know what they are, but they have the access to the resources. If they were to speak to a disabled person who maybe have been put off in the past of going to university because of accessibility reasons, or they're a disabled person looking to go to university, if that disabled person knew that this, this particular place had all these accessibility and inclusivity statements, that would, I know for me, for sure, that would make like a, a huge difference to kind of just generally my, my attitude towards the, the university and the people that work there that, okay, these people have thought about this and they want to make it as accessible as possible. And that, yeah. that would, that would change. I know for me, that would change my, you know, how, how I would approach that work. And I'd probably put an extra 10, 20% in, cause I know they're putting their extra 10, 20% to make it as, as, you know, as, as, as accessible as they can do. So I think that I think that's something they need to see to actually those people need to see actually make a difference to a disabled person. Yeah, yeah, and I think in in many ways, um, and and not not even just um, disability. So this inclusive teaching event, and and for example, another thing that that we have at our university is an ally network. Um, so a double ly um, for the diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, for LGBTIQ plus community. And um, we run at, at the uni and staff can enroll for free in a um, little training program. It's got a little online module that does a little workshop on appropriate terminology that, um, you know, talks about um, challenges that people from the LGBTIQ plus community face, as well as, um, you know, the problems with and impacts of, of prejudice and assumptions and discrimination. And um, then staff that successfully complete this training get included in a, in a network, which is basically a, an email chain. Um, but they also have uh, lanyards, like uh, rainbow lanyards with the word um, ally on them. And you can have an email signature as well, which acknowledges you're a staff member, part of the ally network. And it's, there are so many different staff there. Um, and what that does is, um, so for, for those in the classroom, um, they'll be, the staff member will have a lanyard, which acknowledges they are an ally to the LGBTIQ plus community. And, you know, it, it's, it's such an important visibility thing. And then that's what I think these in inclusivity statements or accessibility statements and therefore you know to enforce them policies would do that same thing it's it's about belonging it's about feeling like you are included considered and safe and you know people who don't have an inclusivity statement on their island i'm not saying they're ableist not at all yeah. nowhere near like i'm just saying that it's such an important uh statement for people who have experienced discrimination before to see that someone has recognized that they want to at least try to be inclusive mm. and they want you to feel like you belong 
and you know people don't get it right we don't we don't get it right i don't get it right not at all not all the uh, time um but it's a willingness to learn that is signified um that that it's really important definitely and, as, and especially at a higher education level within universities because you know i think getting accessibility nailed down in university will make a massive difference to whether that particular disabled person you know gets one grade or another whether a better grade or a worse grade because you know it's it's not so much to it you know especially if you go into your master's and you want to go beyond that into your phd and, and what have you it's mega important to have that that environment and that inclusivity nailed down or at least like you said nailed down as pot as much as possible because no one's perfect you're not going to get everything right every single time you try right so yeah that's, that's much important i'd definitely yeah universities in england to take note because i've never been to one but i know from people that they're not the greatest and i know from, from colleges as well in, in the uk they are at least the ones i've been to are awful <laughs> so um that's and that's putting it kindly um yes yeah. i so, wouldn't say we're all great either I'm just oh, yeah. saying, no we but, should try we yeah, should but try. Pe people like yourself are trying to make them try that makes sense yeah. so you know we, we need we need more of you basically <laughs> me more and you and your colleagues <laughs> thanks that's nice. <laughs> no, um, just... <laughs> so with yourself and taking an interest in studying um disability within ancient egypt where would you like to take that personally like yourself have you got the kind of things that you want to dive into or what what is it you'd like to do with that whole topic yeah um so i mean my my masters was was looking at ableism in the field to to sort of open up a conversation about accessibility and disability um in, in the broad field which i i should probably define egyptology um <laughs> which you know it, it looks at um ancient egypt in from you know i i would move as far back as you know like I, I would like to look at like from 10,000 BC all the way until BCE till you know um some include the the Ptolemaic and Roman um which for the non-ancient history people like think Cleopatra Mark Anthony sort of thing um yeah. time period um and you know Egyptology as, as a discipline looks beyond that um my right. my area of research is more focused on less focused on ancient Egypt in terms of the pharaohs the what we'd call pharaonic period of the geographical region of Egypt what what I'm interested in and I would say I'm not even an Egyptologist in sometimes is I'm interested in the people of the past I'm, so I'm interested in in the what the human body can tell us what um my my supervisor is a biocultural um archaeologist or a bioarchaeologist biocultural and and that framework of study looks at the human body as well as everything around them so you know all kinds of texts their historical their cultural context uh, context um any 
evidence that we have, you know, the way their body's facing to the, the where it's located in the landscape to um, the time period that they're from to any uh, family relationships, if we, if we have any, um, to the, the text surrounding them, if they're in a tomb, the artwork, the sculpture, the, um, the things we find, so pots, ceramics, um, so the idea of to look at everything that's, that we could possibly have to tell or at least tell a possible story of someone's past. So what, what I really want to do um, in, in my PhD is I want to look at, um, I want to use disability studies theory. So disability studies, the discipline, um, which most of I'd say almost all um, of the, the research from disability studies come from, comes from disabled scholars or scholars with a disability. Um, and so that is a sort of theoretical framework, uh, which is like a lens we can view the, the past, like a window we can, we can use. Um, and so disability studies and what's called embodiment theory, which is, is a way that centers a person's agency and identity. Um, so who they are and who, what do they think about themselves um, and all aspects of identity, gender, age, um, you know, as much as, as you can, can get from the past. Yeah. And I will use both of those theories to consider um, some people's stories. And so a, a wonderful example um, is uh, Kyle Lewis Jordan. He's a, a, another disabled Egyptologist, actually based in the UK as well, um, who did a presentation which is available on YouTube. Um, and I believe his Twitter is Horace of Neckett. Um, and, and the talk that he, he did um, is a case study on a, a woman named Gesset. It's G-E-H-E-S-E-T, -E -E -E, I think. And um, that's a, a third intermediate period um, ancient Egyptian woman. And he does an incredible case study about um, her human remains are, are known and found and studied and they were CT scanned. And it is argued, and I would say very convincingly argued in a... Um, pathological style study, so paleopathological, which looks at human remains and disease, that she had cerebral palsy. So this woman with cerebral palsy from ancient Egypt, and Kyle just uses um, his knowledge of cerebral palsy as a scholar with cerebral palsy, as an Egyptologist, um, to talk about what might have been Gehset's experience. And so, so I'm interested in, in that. So I'm interested in telling stories of people with disability in the past, and that story is something that isn't this public's general knowledge assumption that people with disability were killed you know infanticide that the spartans killed their babies on the cliffside or you know the aristotle's athenian politeia which is it's a text that is about an ideal society and aristotle states let it be law that no disabled child shall live end quote and um you know these two pieces of not even evidence assumptions one of them is a text about an idealistic view and then the other is an assumption that the spartans killed their their children yeah. um you know um these two ideas permeate all of the ancient world and you know the ancient world is not ancient greece nowhere near it that's a very small section of of the past that could be um and so yeah i would i would really like to continue telling stories that challenge the 
public's idea of the way we experienced disability in the past, the way we saw disability in the past, the way disabled people were treated, um, and their very existence in itself. Um, and through that, make a, a comment about the way people with disabilities can study the ancient world in our museums, in our galleries, in our um, archaeological or heritage sites, as well as in our institutions. So, yeah, that's kind of the that's, idea. It's, it's like, it's, it's fascinating. It's not something you, this iron, and imagine that a lot of kind of just everyday people kind of think about, like, you can, you really thought, oh, it's that far in the past, or at least this, this might just be my very narrow-minded view. This, that far in the past, surely you can't tell about, or at least have an idea if someone had a disability, but like you said there with um, that person's case study, it's like, it's incredible how you can just, you know, do that much research and that many you know, scientific tests or whatever you want to call them, and you come to the conclusion that a person could have a disability. I just that just that that blows me away. That just like it's, it's crazy to me. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, it's I mean, just, that's just what, sorry. That's what drew me to drew me, I should say, to Egyptology in that the the preservation of um, human remains and um, textual like papyrus culture, um, the, the art and and visual culture and material remains. So the the preservation of ancient Egyptian material and human remains is what initially drew me into to Egyptology in that there is there's a lot of stuff that survived yeah. um, particularly in Egypt because of the unique geographical conditions um, but you know that can be that can be extended anywhere um, and yeah definitely it's, it's a bit it's a bit away from disability but did you, did you remember seeing that um the, that study that I can't remember where they, they were based now but they're, I think they're Egyptologists, or however you say the word, and they computerized what I think a mummy would sound like. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, yeah. It was just a, it was just a like a just a noise. Yeah, the three D, uh, like a CT scan and a three D print of um, uh, th throat thorax maybe. Yeah, I did yeah. say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that one is a very interesting case of ethics. We talk about that in our ethics of human remains class. <laughs> There's lots you could done right. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Just thought because it just popped into my mind. It's completely off topic from disability, but no, I remember no, hearing it. it. Everyone, everyone took the mic out of it because it was just a, it was just a noise. It was like surely yeah. that's not that's a, they, they were human. They weren't like some sort of right. Cat. Right. Yeah, right. but yeah. Um, so one question I like to kind of ask people towards the end is if you could give. A message to yourself or someone who is wanting to get into the area that you're in you can kind of pick between the two um what would that message be hmm i think for for someone interested in studying disability in the ancient past in the, the you know more modern past um i would say that we welcome you so much um, because everyone has a perspective that's unique um, 
And so, you know, there's no knowable past. So every perspective that um, is, you know, unique offers a unique insight. And um, I would encourage you to take a moment to think about what, what you value, what your morals are and what, what you know, you, um, what, what perspectives do you bring to the past? Because you'll have your own and, you know, th those are biases. So sit with those, find out what they are and find out what your values are and then, um, you know, fight, fight for those. So if, um, if you're interested in studying disability in the ancient world, you need to be interested in accessibility and you need to be interested in engaging um, with the disability community today, because even though the ancient world is so far away, your research is for the modern world because that's where you live. So I guess that's yeah, what I would say. Noted there, I think. Um, so yeah, we've honestly, I could, I'm, I'm fascinated by stuff like that. I'm, I found what I want to get into it more just have a deep dive into stuff about just like disability really ancient world because it's, it's just generally just fascinating <laughs> using that word that's the only word that keeps coming to mind but um yeah thank you to yourself hannah for for coming on and and telling about everything that you do um if people want to find yourself or any of the work that you do where can they where can they go yeah um i mean my twitter is at uh, Hannah underscore Vogel eight, um, or you know you could uh, Google me and find I have an academia page which I will update because <laughs> it has not been updated since my masters, um, and uh, I guess um, from my my profiles you can always message me on, on Twitter or um, get my email um, from from that. Definitely. Once again, thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank um, you for having me. I hope people, no problem, and I hope people that have been listening, just uh, I've, I've messed the ending up already. <laughs> I hope people who have been listening have enjoyed it just as much as I have done talking to Hannah, and we'll catch you very soon.